not gonna say it somebody should let's talk about two times let's talk about bum one yeah asking the questions that nobody could like where are the bone dogs and are they in harmony Hey everybody, welcome. Um, well, today we've got the start of something special. But first, um, we got we got our LLC here at Helpful Snowman last, I don't know, in 2020. And it continues to uh, be a thing. We got, uh, and part of that is we get constant offers for credit cards. Oh, they didn't actually send a card. What cheap fuckers? Chase Bank didn't actually send me a card. But uh, they send, you know, rewards designed for your business, which I highly doubt. I highly doubt that the rewards for this credit card sent to the business are designed for this business. I think they should probably look into that before making that claim. Because with this business in particular, that is, uh, that's questionable. Uh, what we're doing today is the start of something special. We are going to uh, do the audiobook edition of Pete's Exhaustive Review of Model Land, which is my most successful uh, book that I've released. And the back cover features me sitting on a toilet. Um... So for those of you who don't know, which is probably no one, Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land is a book that I wrote about a book, and that book is Model Land by Tyra Banks. <laughs> um, I chose to do this because uh, I read Model Land, and it's one of the most baffling things I've ever... Not only is it baffling in terms of being a um, confusing thing to exist in the world, it's baffling the way it turned out. Which we will certainly get into in detail. Um, model Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land is uh, probably the longest complete work I've ever done. Um, however, it's not. It pales in comparison to the length of actual Model Land, which is very long. I recommend reading Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land over reading Model Land, and that's not just because I am Pete and wrote Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land, it's because, uh, uh, you know, one of the challenging things about talking about, uh, let's call them bad books for now, or movies that are bad but good bad, is that sometimes um, talking about them and hearing about them is a lot more interesting than actually putting yourself through the whole thing. Anyway, without further ado... Uh, this is Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land, Part 1. Introduction. Fuck you, it's Model Land. That's the slogan I came up with for this project. Or a chorus, if you will. My first attempt to read Tyra Banks' Model Land started in 2012. It also ended in 2012, somewhere about 20% into the book. I couldn't take anymore. There were so many other things I could enjoy. Why spend time on Model Land? There were birds, trees. Then in 2015, I decided, fuck birds and trees. I threw up a Kickstarter, Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land. 
And with that, I answered the question, how much money would convince me to read Model Land? A hundo, it turns out. A well-earned hundo. I read the damn book, and as part of the deal, I wrote a long, detailed, exhaustive review. And here it is. Now, full disclosure, this gets long. About 50,000 words long, if numbers matter to you. There was just so much to say, so much to outline, and so many dead ends and wrong turns that made reviewing the book a true challenge. Which details are significant, and which will be dropped almost immediately and without fanfare? Which characters will return, and which will be left to the wayside is completely unimportant. It's impossible to say. But I will say this. The book itself clocks in at over 500 pages, and I counted exactly one decent joke in those pages. So if you want to experience the crazy of Model Land without the pain, or at least without all of the pain, then this is the way to go. Think about this as the Mystery Science Theater 3000 of book reviews. Uh, abbreviated as MST3K in this book because that's the nerd that I am. Frame by frame, page by page, we'll go through this mother. Crack a beer, maybe five, hundred, and enjoy Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land. The journey begins. Model Land. Here begins the chronicle of my second run at Model Land. I just want to start off with something here. A problem I found in talking about bad books or movies or games or whatever. Sometimes I find that when you're getting into something that's bizarre, it tends to sound awesome. I'll give you an example. I was talking about the movie Escape Plan just this morning, and I described it like this. Well, Stallone and Schwarzenegger have to escape, that's what I think the movie should have been, the escape plan, from the same prison that I'm pretty sure was in Face Off, and they blow up the guy from the Jesus movie with a missile and 50 Cent is like a computer hacker. If someone described a movie to me that way, I would want to see it. That sounds like the perfect movie, really. Stallone, Schwarzenegger, the meeting of Jesus and modern warfare technology. When you describe something terrible by kind of explaining how terrible it is, well, there's fun to be had. And there was fun in Escape Plan. And when you describe it, you have to think, why didn't I enjoy that movie? Oh yeah, because what I described was the two minutes of fun in two hours of movie. That's the problem. Not the absence of fun, but the ratio of fun to not fun. 50 Cent being the tech guy occupies 10% of my review, but he was like 2% of the movie. And Jesus Guy is the Jesus Guy to me, but it's not like anyone in the movie acknowledges how funny it is to blow up Jesus with a missile. Which kind of brings us to the other problem. When I talk about Stallone being a prison escape artist, I know that's stupid. I'm not so sure that the escape plan knows it. If a movie kind of knows it's a little stupid, things tend to work out better. For example, Stallone slash Kurt Russell vehicle Tango and Cash. I'm pretty convinced that at least some of the people involved with that had a pretty good idea they were making a stupid movie. How seriously can you discuss a battle van? With Escape Plan, I'm not convinced. Maybe a couple people had an idea, but I don't think most of the cast and crew realized they were making a hilarious movie, and therefore it doesn't feel like a hilarious movie. It's mostly kind of boring. Model Land is 569 pages long. It's jammed with crazy. Back to the gills? Balls to the wall? Is that the same? It's filled to the balls with crazy. I have a suspicion that, in some ways, based on this review, Model Land is going to sound fun. When I describe just how tortured the whole thing is, I think it's going to sound pretty fun. Let me reassure you, although it's fun to discuss, it's not fun to read. Based on my previous experience, it's painful. Even at a few pages per day, it's a slog. 
Without further ado, let's start with the introduction. Model Land Introduction The intro to Model Land is a few pages of italicized type that makes no sense. One of my least favorite ways to start a narrative. Just throw me in the, with the narrator narrating a bunch of crazy words that mean nothing. Throw me into the body of someone I've never met who is mid-conversation with someone else I've never met, and don't worry about bringing me up to speed. There's no time! We only have 569 pages here, let's get clipping along. Rather than parse the text of the introduction, which I don't think is comprehensible, I want to include my favorite portion. The land you thirst for has loomed at the top of the mountain in Metopia for as long as you can remember. But for most of the year, it's covered in fog, its color changing with each passing day as if it's a gargantuan mood ring. You begin your morning staring at the fog, longing for the fateful evening when it will turn a golden yellow and then, finally, like a push-up brassiere, lift. This title section is pretty representative of the entire book, honestly, and you can take a lot from, of it, from it. It's so weird so early. I mean, I have to believe that 250 pages into reading this thing, any editor would probably say, fuck this shit, just let Tyra say whatever, who cares? I only work here because everyone pretends not to notice that I smoke at my desk. I picture all editors as J. Jonah Jameson, by the way. But this is the beginning, the start of this tale. And for me, it all comes down to the little line at the end, the one about how fog lifts like a brassiere. When the word lift is used with fog, it means dissipate, right? The fog dissipated. When the word lift is used with a bra, it means elevate. The bra elevated. If my analysis sounds right to you, then Tyra's little comparison here means that she thinks either A, fog goes away by ascending into the sky where it remains always, or B, bras have a tendency to vanish. I might have a fundamental misunderstanding of the way a bra works. I might. It is not my understanding that like fog, a bra dissipates in the presence of sunshine or wind. Possible third dissipation option, Scott Baio-based superpower from that Scott Baio movie where he had some sort of magic power and mostly used it to make bras disappear. You know that movie that really seemed like a Charles in Charge prequel movie, but they were like, hmm, being in charge isn't enough. Let's give him a superpower or something. Or like a sassy parrot. Now maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Tyra is right. But I kind of doubt it. I kind of think what happened here is Tyra picked what she thought was a good comparison because both phrases have the word lift and no one told her no, which is an ongoing theme here. If I had to create a subtitle for this book, the full title that appeared on the book's cover would be Model Land, colon, the time nobody told Tyra no. A strange and prophetic start. Introducing Tookie. In chapter one of Model Land, we're introduced to a whole lot of mess. A whole mess of stuff. First mess, Tookie de la Creme, our hero, our heroine. Tookie de la Creme is teenage Tyra. No need to beat around the bush. Tyra's admitted this herself in interviews. Plus, in description, Tookie matches teen Tyra to a T-Y-R-A. Except that Tookie has one yellow eye and one, I don't know, probably an eye may of fire or something, purple. Who gives a shit? Here's what's weird about it. Tookie calls herself a forget-a-girl. As in a forgettable girl, someone nobody really remembers even if to, after they meet her. Tyra describes Tookie's flaws mostly tall forehead, wild hair, and that's pretty much it. This is Tyra Banks at age 15, people. A woman who moved to Milan to model when she was 16. 
First African-American woman on Sports Illustrated Swimsuits cover and Victoria's Secrets cover. These milestones might or might not align with your definition of success, but I don't know if there are a lot more ways a person can be told they are attractive. Reading this description and understanding that 15-year-old Tyra is being defined as unattractive, it just made me feel like I must be uglier than I thought. Because my flaws at 15? Holy shit. I don't need to get down on myself, but there was acne on a level of medical intervention. You know, a good test of how hot you are might be the Tyra Milan test. Tyra's looks took her to Milan. That's how far she could leverage looks. Looks per mile, if you will. My looks? I mean, I rode the bus, and I paid for the bus. I couldn't even get a bus driver, a public figure we've all acknowledged to be creepy, to notice me and let me ride free. What does that tell you? The real problem introduced with Tookie is the problem of beauty, and it's one that goes through the entire book. We're made to understand that Tookie is not conventionally attractive. She's a teenage Tyra and also unattractive. So which one is it? Is she headed to Milan in 12 months, or is she a forget-a-girl? Sure, we all go through our awkward phases. Tyra, like a lot of beautiful people, is quick to point out that she was an ugly duckling of sorts until she blossomed into adulthood. This is something people love to say, However, they know what it's like to be an uggo, or how they know what it's like to be an uggo because they were once unattractive too. They identify with our struggle. They weren't always one of the most beautiful people on an entire planet. Let me tell you something, and this comes from the uggos. It's not being ugly for a time that's difficult. It's accepting that you are and will remain not hot. Well, I totally get that you are beautiful and beautiful people look back on their preteen years and shudder, might I advise that you don't try to bring us uggos onto your side by explaining that you were ugly too before you got hot? Tyra, saying that you know the ugliness feels, it's like telling a paraplegic that you understand what it must be like because your leg fell asleep one time. Also, while we're on the topic, the ugly duckling is the stupidest story ever. We all learn a great lesson because this duck is really ugly and has low self-esteem, and then he gets hot. So I guess the lesson is wait, and then you'll get hot, so don't worry about it, because every adult goes through a hot phase. All right, back to the book. Back to Tookie. Instead of doing what hot people do in school, like, I don't know, wearing leather, leather jackets and shoving nerds into lockers and stuff, Tookie skips class and lays around in the hallway, shooting whipped cream into her mouth straight from the can. And already, I start getting the idea that Tyra was so busy modeling at 15 that she doesn't even really know how school works. Because Tookie is the bestest school skipper of all time, and she skips class to lay around in the hallway. She doesn't even leave the school, just hangs out there so we can be introduced to some more characters. More characters? Well, surely you don't need any more characters, you must be saying. But Model Land, like whichever dumb TV station has that character's welcome philosophy, is crappy and has plenty of characters to go around. Let's meet Miracle, M-Y-R-R-A-C-L-E. Miracle is Tookie's sister, and just in case you weren't sure which child was the golden child, one of them is named Miracle. Our introduction to Miracle is pretty brief. Miracle sings some song about how she and Tookie don't share DNA as she passes uh, in the school's hallway, which is really dumb. I mean, if there was one thing that's not going to hurt your sister, it's a completely made-up non-fact. Tookie and Miracle do share DNA. They're sisters. That's one of the very few things they share, for sure, regardless of how they feel about it. Anyway, all we need to know about 
miracle is that she's the bratty bitch favorite. Then we meet Zarpessa. She is the bratty bitch favorite too, but favorite of Tookie's love interest as opposed to Tookie's parents. Which brings us to Theophilus Lovelaces, Tookie's love interest. Just as an aside, I'm almost positive that I'm pronouncing these names incorrectly. Um, spelling these in the book was a chore and was a lot of copy and paste at the end of the day. And uh, I think I eventually ended up doing a find and replace to get the names in there because I was like, I'm not typing Theoph Theophilus, Theophilus, whatever, um, over and over. I'm not typing miracle in this stu stupid way. And there's a one name in particular that has a tilde in it later on. And uh, that was a fuck ass no. Yes, we have four characters now, and their names are Tookie, Miracle, Zarpessa, and Theo Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? Well, he's the handsome, if short, class president, awesome, cool guy who is kind and does everything right, except for dating one of the worst humans on the planet, Zarpessa. Did this, did this ever happen in real life? I feel like this high school perfect person dating the jerk narrative comes up in movies all the time, but when I look at it now as an adult, I just feel like it's kind of dumb. When I look back at high school, most of the people I thought were jerks really were only kind of jerks, and the people they dated were pretty much equivalent jerks. It was just the one set of jerks had boobs and butts, and because I was young, people who had boobs and butts seemed nice to me. But again, I was dumb, and these were weird horny fluids in my brain, or penis, it's a logic that only applies for about three years of youth when a person says, well, this person has boobs and a butt, so they can't be that bad. I wonder what that boobs and butt is doing with a jerk. So I guess the perfect person dating the hell bastard happens in real life in a way, but it's an issue of perception. And because Model Land is written in third person, not from Tookie's perspective, things are pretty confusing. If Tookie was seeing things that way, it'd make sense. But the book is telling me that Zarpessa is evil incarnate and Theo is perfect. However, all of that real is really more a critique of a common narrative. It's not nearly the worst of Model Land's sins. Really, at least it's a plot I'm familiar with, so I sort of feel like I know what's happening there. The use of a cliched plot device, the aligning of love interest with the enemy, is one of the better parts of the book so far. At least it's something I understand. Let's talk about the main action in this chapter, show you what I mean. Theo is wearing a button. It's printed with his campaign slogan for his bid to become class president, and his campaign slogan is Vote for Love, which I guess refers to his ridiculous name, Theophilus, which means lover of God. The origin of his last name, Lovelaces, I can only assume has to do with an affinity for the shoes that lace up and a bitter hatred of Velcro. I don't know. I don't know what Ty that Tyra picked these names with a lot of purpose. I don't know whether she looked into the names or sort of picked them from the world's worst, ugliest, most stupidest hat. What I do know is that the button falls from Theo's jacket, get ki gets kicked all around the halls of the school, stepped on, and it zings into the lunchroom trash. It's like the fucking magic bullet that killed JFK, except even more painful to one brain. My brain, you guys. My brain hurts. My brain hurts worse than if it were a national tragedy. Why? I'll let Tyra explain what Tookie sees when she retrieves the button. The poor thing was badly damaged, dented and slimy from its voyage. In fact, it no longer said vote for love. Instead, the V and O and E of the first word were gone. The F and R of the second were totally erased. 
and the last word, the L, was knocked into non-existence, and the V was scratched so badly it resembled a K, but the E remained intact. Tookie almost threw the button back into the trash before her eyes focused again, and she saw it now spelled its own version of her. T-O-O-K-E. Okay, let's hold the phone. What Tyra did here was to create this sort of fate-based incident. A button is mangled and kicked around, and the text changes from vote for love to T-L-O-K-E. The only problem I have isn't with a fate-based coincidence here, even though it's kind of stupid because the only thing that makes coincidence interesting is when it's real, or possibly prophesized way ahead of time in a book like A Prayer for Owen Meany. The problem I have is that this is a setup is a coincidence, so why not make the resulting text on the button make fucking sense? Tyra can start off with whatever fucking word she wants on that button. Why not something that could actually be altered and wind up looking like T-O-O-K-E, or for that matter, throw in an I so it might result in the actual spelling of the name Tookie? What the fuck, guys? What the fuck? Is this Tyra's threshold of believability? If she added the one extra letter, it would be too wild. I just wish she would have thought about it, because God knows I have. Here are just a few things that could result in the button displaying Tookie and still be campaign slogans on the level of Vote for Love. Theo. The look, the brains, the prez. Vote for Theo. Keep it real. Time to rock the presidency. I mean, they aren't awesome, but this is five minutes of thinking here. I didn't even use the word took, which is pretty low-hanging fruit. Or two. T-O-O. Really, there are so many good options, it's ridiculous. While I have you here, let's just wrap up the chapter with the rest of the weird shit Tyra throws in. T-mail jail. This is what Tookie calls her notebook. She uses it to write letters to her friends that no one will read. The notebook's cover is adorned with scribbles begging people to look inside, the reverse of the old keep out and top secret. At first I thought this was a really dumb version of reverse psychology, but the chapter made me think that Tookie is actually so desperate to be noticed that she wants people to read her secret diary. She is really pathetic. She keeps lamenting how nobody notice her, notices her, but maybe the problem is that they're turned off by the way she lays on the floor in the hallway and writes, please read me on the cover of her notebook. T-Dodd, the day of discovery. This is the day when girls are whisked away to model land. It is coming right up, believe it or not. Something Tyra really likes is making sort of acronyms. Something Tyra is not very good at is making sort of acronyms. For example, did it not occur to her to leave out the and of and call it DD or double D, which also has a second meeting in the world of clothing and fashion and women? B3. The stupid name for the school Tookie attends, which is called B3 because it used to be a factory that made buttons, baubles, and bullshit? I don't know. It made three things, and they all started with a B, and then it was converted from a factory into a school for no fucking reason. And then the vents belch weird gases from time to time, and no one seems interested in that. Tyra time. As part of this review, I do also want to talk a little Tyra, explain a little of how this book came to be. While I was looking into this, I kept seeing that Tyra was a Harvard grad, which blew my fucking mind. Not because I think all beautiful people are dumb, but because I think Tyra is kind of dumb. Okay, there's this whole idea that anyone who is successful must be sort of smart. The kind of, if she's so dumb, why is she more successful than you kind of thinking. 
or this idea that so-and-so knows how to market himself. He's not only a successful board shorts model, but he's actually a really savvy businessman. My personal theory, we created these narratives because we don't want to believe that some people just get things. That sometimes luck is a factor, and sometimes a fool gets lucky. So let's just toss out this Harvard grad business out the door. Tyra did attend Harvard, but she didn't get a degree. She got a certificate for completing coursework in the owner-slash-president management program, which does not grant degrees or academic titles. The classes do not count toward any degree programs. Jezebel wrote a long article about it, and I'll sum up what they seem to be getting at. The application to OPMP asks about your current income, and as of three years ago, the cost for a single course was $33,000. Sounds to me like Harvard has set aside a few courses for rich people who want to say they went to Harvard. To say Tyra went to Harvard, that's like me saying I played basketball at Duke, when what I did was play a game of basketball on the Duke campus with other people who were just around. There you go. Books for Teens This is where the book takes a total trip to teen book town, big time for real. Every element in this chapter is straight out of a book with a title like Teen Scene. Write it so they'll read it, girl. You need to write can has books or something. Basically, this part contains every element used to beef up a teen novel, all jammed into the same chapter. This isn't me bashing on teen lit right now. There's great teen lit, and even great teen lit that uses the tropes I'm about to scream about, but let's pay, play fair. If teen lit is a legitimate and deserving genre, which it is, then we have to acknowledge that there's some garbage in there too, and that it's not above criticism. What makes it so awful in Model Land, what makes these teenatizing attempts so horrible, is that they seem like such naked grabs at story that isn't there. Let's take a look at the three biggies in this chapter. First, we have Tookie, our main star, lamenting how there's no way in hell she'll be picked to go to Model Land. The place, not the title. She's already in the book called Model Land. Now she wants to go to the place within the book that also has the same name. You know, like how most books are named after the place where the people go, like how the book Battle Royale was originally called Asian Kid Death Island, and how The Shining was called the hauntedest room in the whole Stanley Hotel. Model Land's premise is a Willy Wonka kind of thing. Some people are selected somehow, and those selected people are whisked away to Model Land. And Tookie is moping around, always saying things like, Sigh, I know I'll never get picked for Model Land. Might as well not even try. Now, I'm reading a book called Model Land, in which a young woman is talking an awful lot about Model Land. If Tookie didn't actually end up being selected to go to Model Land, I'll be pretty shocked and disappointed. It's obvious she's going, right? Is there any way the plot in this could twist to the point that Tookie does not go to Model Land? And this is trope the first. We have some sort of role to fill, and we have a character that doubts his or her place, his or her ability to step into a big pair of shoes. Take Hunger Games, original title, vaguely medieval kid death park. Will Katniss go or won't she? The first book has a very brief misdirect that makes it seem like Katniss won't be headed to stab teens in the eye with arrows, but then, of course, she goes. It's a used idea, and it's there, but Hunger Games keeps the will-she-won't-she she pretty brief. We don't spend a lot of time wondering, and it's probably because the author figured the story really happens when we get to the Hunger Games, so let's get the character to the Hunger Games already. We get some of the same medicine in Harry Potter, original title, platform nine and three quarters, followed by a train ride ending at a castle school. Oh man, will Harry be able to get back to Hogwarts even though those bastard Dursleys are always fucking with him? 
By the way, one of the worst things about that series. Jesus Christ, why in the holy hell would they send Harry back to live with these shithead relatives? That's madness. Second question, why would he go? Couldn't he just work at Target or Wizard Target or whatever and pay rent somewhere? Don't wizards need hand towels? Harry could sell hand towels over the break, live in, I don't know, one of the billion rooms in Hogwarts? There are secret ghost rooms and shit all over that school. There was a troll in a bathroom and nobody noticed. The least they could do is clear out a closet under a staircase. I don't think that's asking a lot for the kid who basically saves the magic verse or whatever. Maze Runner. Again, same thing. Gee, I hope I become a maze runner instead of whatever, a farmer or some shit. I hope in this book called Maze Runner, I get the chance to be a maze runner. So that's trope the first, that aspirational bit. The problem in Model Land is the constant, golly, there's no way a loser like me is going to Model Land when we as readers know there's no goddamn way we're not going to Model Land. We all know we're going there, so let's just go there already. Oh, and the timeline is a real bastard, too. Skipping ahead, in Model Land, the characters arrive in Model Land on page 149. 149 pages to get through before we open the doors to Model Land. What the fuck? I have to wait that goddamn long to get to the place I'm told about in the title. Holy shit. 150 pages, even if these pages aren't dense, that's gonna take a while. Let's call it a minute for every two pages. Let's be generous. It's still going to take me 75 minutes to get to Model Land. Do you know how long the entire Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie lasts? 100 minutes. In the time it's going to take me to get to Model Land, I could have seen a fatso drown in chocolate, watched the scariest goddamn boat ride ever, pondered the plight of little people actors, remembered that Mike TV seemed like an okay kid whose mom just never pushed back when he pushed the boundaries, and pretty much be ready to wrap it all up. This takes forever. But to be fair, there's some world building to be done here. Let's move on to Trope 2. Trope 2 is a society that's divided very sharply into different sector sectors, sometimes geographically, sometimes by job or position, but there's always a division and it's always super important where you land within that division. You know, which wizard house you're in, whether you're a pretty or an ugly ninja turtle or battle toad. The world of Model Land is divided into geographical quadrants. We don't know a lot about the quadrants, but what we know is Tookie is in the shitty one. It's hot as hell, windy as hell, if hell is windy, and mostly made up of factories that make jewelry and crap. What bugs me about this shit, it doesn't even seem like there's anything in particular preventing Tookie from leaving Shitsville and moving right over to Awesomeburg. Some team books handle this stuff through technology that prevents movement, or they toss in other magic or genetic ways that lock people in. In Model Land, Tookie was just unfortunate enough to be born on the wrong side of the tracks and apparently doesn't have the will? The will to jump over the other side? It's another trope that kind of sucks. If you have these different casts or whatever, you gotta explain to me why people can't move between them. Gattaca was a movie based entirely on explaining the ways in which someone could move between the stupid lines drawn by a stupid society. Ethan Hawke had a fridge full of piss. That's a barrier right there. Tookie's main barrier? I don't know, she's too busy? I have no idea. I know, I know. It's not that easy in real life. I'd like to move myself and haven't managed it. But I know a big part of my problem. I'm comfy. I think there's a potential to be happier, but I'm happy enough? I'm sure as hell not living in a land of intense crazy heat, working in a tow ring factory, and living with my shithead parents. Meanwhile, Awesomeburg is about five miles away. 
it's a long walk, but holy shit, get a backbone and then put a backpack on that backbone and start walking. Not to get all lit professor here, but I think this whole thing speaks to a desire most teens have to get out of their one-horse town and see the world. It's weird when you're a teen because you probably have access to a car. You could just drive off and leave and go wherever. But there's this other stuff that keeps you where you are, at least for a little while. It's not so much physical or tangible, but there's a life stuff that lets teens ride it out, part of which is the knowledge that high school will end and then they can still pick a path. With Tookie, we've got a loser who is headed for a life of loserdom, and there's no getting out of it, except for simply getting out of it. And we all know that she's destined to get out of it, as seen in Trope 1, which means that seeing how crappy her town is doesn't mean a whole lot, and we're just dicking around like a bunch of fools waiting to be swept away to stupid model land. We're really just killing time here pondering whether a quest will happen when we know it's absolutely going to happen, hoping to get out of a town when we know that is absolutely going to happen as well. Which brings us to trope number three, real world problems. A lot of teen lit deals with real world shit, and like any medium, it has varying levels of success. Some books are successful in realistically portraying something, others are more heightened and use real world shit to bring some drama to a relationship or situation. And then some just seem to throw real-world drama in there because why the hell not? Right in that last category, why the hell not, let's introduce Tookie's friend, The Cutter. The Cutter is a crazy girl who is Tookie's only friend. She's homeless, sort of. She lives in a treehouse that's described as being filled with jugs of water and pastries and also has a twin mattress in it. The narrator points out that she doesn't know how a mattress got up there, and points out that there's no explaining how a young girl carried a twin mattress into a treehouse. I wasn't exactly dying for an explanation on that one. It would have been fine to go ahead and not highlight a mattress brought up high into a tree, especially in a world where we've already seen an insane Rube Goldbergian action sequence to alter the spelling on a button, a world in which we've got characters with names like Theophilus Lovelaces, a mattress in a treehouse, something accomplishable with a little know-how, isn't the first thing in this book that made me say, now hold on, I'm up for believing a lot, but this is a bridge too far. Yet someone decided we needed to highlight the inexplicable nature of a mattress in a tree. Go figure. Anyway, Tookie's friend is in and out of some kind of an insane asylum, and she's also a cutter. Tookie sees the girl pick up a sharp rock to cut herself with, and the chapter ends with Cutter skittering away, bending down to pick up yet another sharp rock. The cut... This cutting business is taken seriously, inasmuch as it's not a joke in the book, but who boy does it feel tossed in for no particular reason. I'm kinda on board with a madcap romp through insanity with Tyra at the wheel. I'm kinda on board with the overdramatic nature of some teen lit. What I'm not so on board with is the combination of the two. The introduction of a cutter into this story feels pretty unearned. It's the perfect example of what's wrong with this book. This book doesn't know itself. It's filled with these moments, these moments when Tyra writes herself right out of the few things that make the book enjoyable. It's like this. I just watched Demolition Man. It's awesome, it's fun, it's stupid, and it knows that it's pretty goddamn stupid. There's a little message in there about society being weak and namby-pamby, but it's pretty light on message, heavy on people driving while firing a gun with each hand. If Tyra wrote Demolition Man as teen lit, we'd have a scene in here where the Sandra Bullock character smokes cigarettes as part of her love of 20th century lifestyle. And Stallone would have to talk her out of it, saying he lost his mother to lung cancer or something. 
Now, I ask you, in a fun movie, is that fun? And if it's not fun, does it at least accomplish the goal of making cigarettes look less cool? No and no. It's off-tone and it's a waste of film, and Sandy B can do whatever the fuck she wants. Modeland's introduction of a character with an actual problem just doesn't work. It doesn't add to the fun, and it doesn't have anything serious to say about cutting other than saying that this made-up girl does it. And I don't want to infer too much, but the two least explained aspects of this character are her cutting and the fact that she managed to get a mattress into a treehouse. Connection? Almost definitely. I guess next time I move, I'll poke myself with a toothpick and see if there's a marked difference in upper body strength. There's a really weird moment in this section that encapsulates the whole issue. Tookie is walking down the street in her crap town, and she's thinking about the plight of all these poor factory workers. And when she's thinking about that, while her heart is beating for all these factory people, she catches a glimpse of herself in a reflective surface, and she reminds all of us that her forehead is a bit on the tall side. If in the reader is going to learn, along with Tookie, a ham-fisted lesson about what real problems are, I can dig it. But my memory of this book doesn't make me think we're headed that way. My memory of this book has me thinking that Tookie's beauty doubts continue to be forefront, and we as readers are supposed to identify with the curse of being a 9.7 out of 10, as opposed to really feeling the struggles of an oppressed working class. If it's a ridiculous world where beauty is all that matters, cool. But then we get class struggle, cutters, and a brief glimpse of the rich girl in schools, Arpessa, dumpster diving? I'm all for mixing genres and ideas. Don't make a mistake and think I'm not interested in that shit. But it's just done so badly here. It's like, imagine reading a book that's light and fun, and at the end of each chapter you get a little text box with a message in it like, don't forget world hunger is a thing and someone will die while you read this book. Or, hey, 9-11, nothing to do with the contents of this book, but imagine the choice to jump out the window of a burning building. Like, whoa. There's something, a glimmer of something almost smart about Model Land. Tyra is uniquely equipped to tell the story of being a young model, of how strange that world is, and of what it might be like to be a model who doesn't necessarily believe in her own beauty. What I don't think Tyra is equipped to do, based on what I've read so far in Model Land, is tell the story of teens who cut themselves, or of what it's like to grow up in a crap town with a crap life being the only future. I don't know if Tyra ever engaged in self-harm. I do know that she went to an all-girls school with a $12,925 plus fees tuition, 2013 rates, which kind of rules out the towering factory future. But that doesn't really matter either. It's possible for people who haven't experienced something directly to write about it with authenticity. For people, it's possible. For Tyra, I'm saying no. She doesn't have the particular skills to pay those particular bills, and her book was smart to stick to the craziness and quirkiness, and when it just threw in the cutter for no reason besides throwing in a cutter, it lost the thread. Because here's the reality. As a reader, I'm having an experience with this book. And that experience is a crazy-ass pile of crazy, and the best thing I can do is hang on. That's kind of what's to be expected, and if I was pissed off that the book was crazy, I'd be in the wrong. As a reader with my outside knowledge of Tyra and who she is and what she does, I'm expecting a Demolition Man-esque ride of a book, perhaps with more eyeliner. What I'm getting so far is a pile of different stories, none of which are any fun. Is the story of Tookie's doubt interesting or fun? No. Let's get to fucking Model Land already. Is the story of divisions in society interesting or purposeful or fun? No. Let's leave them behind and get to Model Land. 
Is the insertion of real-life problems fun or purposeful or handled so deftly that they cannot be denied? Again, no, and couldn't we deal with this stuff in Model Land? Wouldn't that make more sense? Wouldn't that speak to Tyra's real experiences, her story to tell? The one and only she could really tell if she just got over Tookie being such an individual that she has a dumb waiter instead of a locker and a whipped cream canister she keeps in a cooler at school? We get it. Tookie is weird in her world and uber normal in ours. Who are the real weirdos here, Tookie? Aren't the normal ones the true weirdos? Oh, pig face Twilight Zone episode. Fuck enough. Just can we just go to goddamn model land already? Is that so much to ask? Tyra's masterclass. Let's talk about writing technique. Okay, first, for those following, let's cover the characters and concepts introduced in this next section. There's so much going on in every chapter that it has to be done. See, one of the problems here is that as you read along, you can't possibly know which pieces of this story are relevant and which are just crazy garbage tossed in for no fucking reason. It's like, you know how there's that playwright who talks about hiding the gun? In the first act of the play, someone hides a gun and then you kind of build tension because you know it's there the whole time and you're thinking, well, they hid that gun, so I guess it's going to come into play eventually. It would be pretty weird if that gun never showed up again. Model Land is hiding guns all over the place. In terms of hiding guns, it's like an 80s action movie where every time Kurt Russell taps on a dresser or something, a hidden drawer with a gun pops out. He's taking a shit and a gun falls out from behind the toilet paper. He goes into the pantry to get a can of beans and next to the other cans you've got a can that is suspiciously shaped exactly like a gun, as though it may not be a can of beans at all, but rather a gun. This is what Model Land is doing to me right now, and I'm almost positive most of these guns will remain hidden. But in the interest of not going back to say, oh, I forgot in chapter 4, I'll just outline what I see happening and hope for the best. Roll call. Creamy de la creme. Mom. Basically evil stepmom from fairy tales. Image obsessed, crazed. Spends the family's money on things they don't need, like a brand new tea kettle when they already own several. Dad. He's dead. He lost an eye in a circus accident, not yet covered. Also still wears circus outfit just as clothes, apparently. Calls his wife woman. Dad seems like a jerk and he mostly just ignores, ignores Tookie somehow. C.L. C.I. tilde L. Not actually present, but disgust. She was a girl selected to go to Model Land years ago and now she's missing. That's her arc so far. And yes, that's a tilde in her name, which is not something that can be pronounced in speech. You could spell this name C-I bracket L or C-I percent sign L and it would be basically the same. Smize. In our world, it's a short way of saying smile with your eyes and Tyra is credited with inventing this term. In Model Land, it's... I don't know what the fuck it is. It comes out of the water taps. It's like a bubble, then morphs into a film that I picture being like a Listerine strip then it has a flag that pops out and displays scrolling text. It's described about 8,000 different contradictory ways. The point is it's an object that doesn't make any sort of sense and what you need to know is its purpose. It serves simply to Willy Wonka's golden ticket, except instead of a guaranteed passage to a chocolate factory, it, serves the, it gives the finder a 91% chance of being selected to go to Model Land. Smidal's always... Smizes always come out of water taps or pipes, and everyone is looking for them. 
Of, co of course, Tookie found a smize. She was filling a teapot for her mother, and she saw some weird object fall from the tap. She ignored it at first, and Tookie's sister Miracle busted in the front door and did a dance number for no apparent reason, a number which was well-received by the parents, although Creamy did point out that Miracle should be focused on things that are more likely to help her provide for the family, namely, namely hoping to get picked for Model Land. This part where Tookie ignores the smize falling out of the tap is pretty damn stupid. The book can't stop reminding us that every person is running the water constantly, fighting over sewer outlets, and waiting for a smize to pop out of a tap. This is what every character is obsessed with. Tookie sees a weird amorphous object come out of the tap amidst all this craziness, and she goes ahead and ignores it for no reason, until she decides not to ignore it, which is when we find out it's a smize. God damn, this book is dumb. Also, her parents forced Tookie to give the smize to her sister, Miracle, for no reason other than to prove they are total dicks. Seriously, it doesn't matter which daughter goes to Model Land, it's somehow going to make them rich? Question mark? A thinking parent who strongly preferred Miracle would say, Hey, Miracle has a great shot. Now Tookie has a 91% chance. I think we should go with two 91% chances over adding a 91% to a child that I think hung the moon and is already at a 91%. Basically, we're turning in two 91% chances for a single 99%. But whatever. The point of this move wasn't to be smart or realistically money-grubbing. The point was to remind us that everyone thinks Tookie sucks. Which she kind of does. How stupid can you be, you know? Everyone's looking for a thing in the tap. You see a thing in the tap. You grab that shit. If Tookie's behavior so far is any indicator, I kind of don't blame her parents for hating her. Tookie is so desperate to be noticed, but expresses her desperation by laying around in the hall at school, hoping to be noticed. She doesn't have enough ambition to run away from Helltown to Paradise Town about five miles away, and a smile falls in her lap, and she just ignores it because, again, no fucking reason. Tookie kind of sucks. Alright, that's all the content you need to know. Let's talk about technique. This section feels like Tyra went to one writing workshop and someone said the famous phrase, show, don't tell. People take this as a face value gospel rule in writing, and it's fucking stupid. For one, that's not possible. In a book, it just doesn't work that way. If you write a full-length novel, there will be things you tell or things characters tell each other. This is how it works. Second, people take that rule, and they think they can sort of get by on a technicality. As long as you go the route of showing instead of telling, you're writing something good, and they think any way of converting information into shown information is better than telling. I'll give you an example. You know how in a lot of horror movies, someone's being haunted by a ghost because haunting is the best way the ghost can figure out how to ask for something? I want to be put to rest and have my body taken out of a well, so I'll communicate that by... Making a tree turn into an evil monster? That should get the message across. Okay, that happens. And then what the main character does is go to the library, look through some microfiche, and find a story that says, here's exactly what the fuck happened. Or in a more modern day movie, they type ghost into some site called something like Dougal, and then a video pops up and starts in with, ghosts often terrorize people because they want something specific, usually water well related. That's showing by technicality. Yes, we are seeing it, but we're seeing something tell the story. Also, don't fuck around. Don't Google ways to defeat a ghost. You know who to call. Let's take this to a logical limit for a second. 
If a character goes to the library and reads the newspaper about the ghost, if that's showing, then it's also showing to have the newspaper blow around in some wind and hit a character in the face. Or to have the character turn on the TV and the news segment is, Tonight in our series where we just pick some shit out of an old newspaper, a story about a grisly murder where a girl was thrown down a well. This is what happens in Model Land, by the way. CL is missing, and it's in the newspaper, and Creamy reads the story out loud for no reason other than the reader needing to know that this is important. The newspaper text reads an awful lot like the book's narration, by the way, but we don't need to get into voice differentiation. Technically, you're showing me something, but it's just not good writing. It's not good storytelling. Having Tookie write in her journal, excuse me, in her T-mail jail, is showing sort of but still a very stupid version of it. It still doesn't really work. Having dialogue in the kitchen where the mom says, I hate when anyone reads the newspaper before me. I'm very particular about things. You know that. We've discussed it a hundred times. Is showing. But wouldn't it be better to have the mom say some shit that sounds real? It's also a really common trap with dialogue. Dialogue in a story isn't going to be your best expository tool. The reason being you have to have someone who is basically Encino Man so you can explain absolutely everything. Now we are at the school where we attend the 11th grade or junior year and we are currently occupying one of the lower social strata but with you caveman friend we have aspirations to rise up to higher levels and create a new peer circle within this our school place. And sure you could show us all that shit separately. Show the bullies picking on the other kids. Show someone being made fun of by the popular girl. But goddamn, that takes forever. Just tell an Iceman. Hear me, aspiring writers. Show me when there's something to show me. When you can show me something instead of telling me something, do it. But don't become so married to the rule that you have ridiculous dialogue, unrealistic situations that only make sense when I realize that you're being expository, and for fuck's sake, stop using the newspaper as a cheat to show me shit. More in-depth action. Let's do some info dump. Tookie's sister Miracle has won some pageant eight times in a row and nobody else even enters anymore because Miracle is such a pageant badass. Miracle also takes lessons on walking, posing, facial expressions, pouting, and phonics. Phonics. Because our pageants and models are well known for their knowledge of phonics. Although when you get down to it, Miracle is a complete idiot when it comes to words, but at least she's doing something about it. Sure, she calls a period a periodical. But you know what? Enrolling in phonics classes is an acknowledgement that she's got a hilarious problem. Which is why I'm starting to prefer Miracle to the whiny Tookie. I don't think I'm supposed to feel this way as a reader, but I really do. Miracle is gifted, but Jesus, at least she's taking some classes and shit. She and Tookie both want to go to Model Land, and I can't help but notice that one of them is doing some work towards that goal, while the other is... Hey, wait a second. We're up to about Chapter 5, and so far Tookie hasn't done anything. She's been in places, like school and with her friend... But holy shit, so far she hasn't actually done anything. She hasn't even gotten her period. Which I know because it was specifically pointed out. And I gather this is a sore spot between Tookie and Miracle because Miracle has blossomed into the ripe fruit of her womanhood. The blood orange of womanhood, if you will. While Tookie hasn't. Or to put it simply, Miracle has a period, Tookie doesn't. Which Tookie feels is very cosmically unfair as she is two years older. 
Reading this as a dude, I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact that this is meaningful. I get that it probably is. Maybe it's just weird because there's no real male equivalent. What is the equivalent? First boner? No, that doesn't work. Babies have boners. Does the first actual boner happen in the womb? I bet babies do have boners in utero. Yep, confirmed. I took a quick trip to Google, and babies in uteros have boners. Enjoy, expecting mothers. Remind me again about the glorious miracle of life sometime, and don't forget to include all the boners when you do so. By the way, one article with info on unborn boners was seven amazing things babies do in the womb. I tried to look at the other six things amazing enough to share the article space with unborners, but it was one of those stupid-ass articles designed as a slideshow where you had to load a whole page for every item, something to which I'm morally opposed. Besides, what's going to be better than unborn boners? I would love to see one of those anti-abortion billboards with, it, with that on it. I had a heartbeat when I was two seconds old, and we all know what follows a heartbeat. That's right, a raging dick. So please don't mash me up before I get the chance to put this boner to use. Anyway, Tookie, like a Judy Bloom character, is really looking forward to her period, I guess. Will she get it? Golly, I hope not. Nothing against Tookie, but reading Tyra's descriptions of periods, I don't think there's a cotton wad absorbent enough to suck up all the feels. And the last thing I need is to just get confused on the topic. I can't imagine Tyra writing about a period in this book without, I don't know, some kind of rhyming cottony gadget that's used in lieu of a tampon, or maybe a party of sorts that doesn't make sense and just makes it longer for us to get to model land. Let it be known. I'm not at all opposed to reading stuff about periods or discussing them, and it's not something that grosses me out. What I'm opposed to is reading Tyra's take on it, which is mainly due to me being opposed to reading her take on just about anything at all at this point. And with the topic of periods thoroughly flushed out, on to Chapter 5 and the Chris Cream Crobat. Yeah, Chris Cream Crobat. Tookie's father, or at least that's how he was known in his circus glory days. Yes, we finally get the story of Chris's eye gouging. Finally, the part I've been waiting for, my favorite section from my first read-through of this book. Here is how it goes down. And uh, that's where we'll leave you with this section. Cliffhanger! Starring Sylvester Stallone. Um, we're going to leave you with a cliffhanger for this section of the audiobook. And uh, pick it up next time with the uh, the ballad of Chris Cream Crobat Cro and his poked out lost eye. So uh, you've got something to look forward to. Don't kill yourself this week. Asking the questions nobody could. Like where are the bone thoughts and are they in home? Oh,